Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome to Emporia State Catholics. Uh, this is Father Matt, and I'm joined by Patrick Callahan, per usual, and we have a special guest today, Joe Heschmeyer, uh, works for School of Faith. He was down here at Diddy uh, beginning of this past school year, gave a great talk on the resurrection, so welcome, Joe. Glad Thanks, to good to you. be here. Yeah. All right, so today we are looking at, at Chapter 4, The Ethics of Elfland, uh, from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and uh, we'll just give our, our kind of our brief rundown uh, outline of what he's talking about in this chapter, and then we'll kind of pick it apart and talk about our, our favorite parts and all that stuff. So he begins by by talking about uh, tradition, democracy, um, the idea of uh, uh, democ- uh, tradition being the democracy of the dead, uh, giving the vote to those who um, aren't alive by the accident of death, as he says. Then he kind of transitions to talking about the philosophy of Elfland, the philosophy of fairy tales, this, this realism uh, that, that he said he was imbued with uh, from his nursery. He goes in to talk about uh, what, what he terms the doctrine of conditional joy and how that precludes uh, kind of the, the, the scientific fatalism of the modern world. Uh, and, and then also he, he talks about uh, I think the way he put it is all the good in the universe is a remnant to be stored and held sacred because it was saved out of some primordial ruin. He talks about uh, the good of this universe um, like the goods Robin Crusoe saves from the wreck, wrecked ship, uh, the primordial ruin being original sin, as we will see. So that's a brief rundown of the chapter. Yeah, well... Um moving then from the beginning of the chapter into sort of the core of the the propositions, Chesterton is going to say, Father, that he um, wants to put together a general position. Um, And so he says, I pretend to do it, therefore, by writing down one after another, the three or four fundamental ideas, which I have found for myself, pretty much in the way I found them. And again, it goes back to what he's told us all along, that orthodoxy is his personal account of how he came to believe Finally, after the first three chapters where he's gone over both the reasons why he wrote and why he what he opposes, he's finally going to give us something that he actually does believe. Um, and then he's doing this Chesterton thing where he's like, I'll tell you what I believe. It's three or four. I don't even know how to number yeah. it. Right. And so it becomes a little difficult to follow along. I had difficulty following along as I was preparing for this episode. I, I wrote down one and then, you know, one A, one B, one C. No, 1C, 1B1, Roman yes. numeral 1, yes. Rome B, Roman numeral 2. So I kind of have one idea, which is two ideas, which is four ideas. Um, and it's a little hard to, to follow along. But I think the, the first idea, at least, is the core one of this chapter um, has to do with um, sort of the, the rationality of, of uh, fairy tales. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that and dwell on that the most, since it's, uh, I think, the one that he likes the most, too. Well, and it comes out of the tradition uh, and democracy comment, right? These are popular traditions uh, that are are carried from generation to generation in the nursery and and the fairy tales, right? In in Elfland, and he's not talking so much here. He says about like the particular morals of a fairy tale. So he says like 
There's the lesson of Cinderella, which is the same as that of the Magnificat, Exultavit Humiles, uh, the humble shall be exalted. There is a, the great lesson of Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved before it must be lovable. I mean, I'm going to disagree with him there. Beauty and the Beast is about Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, the students at Diddy Center know that well because I ruthlessly make fun of that movie. I think he might have been aware of a book prior to the movie. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, the novelization of the movie. Yes, yes. Um, anyways, but he's not concerned with these separate statutes of Elfland, but with the whole spirit of the law. And he talks about... Uh, what, what is this whole spirit of law? He says, there are certain sequences of developments, cases of one thing following another, which are, in the true sense of the word, reasonable. They are, in the true sense of the word, necessary, such as mathematical and merely logical sequences. So he says that two plus three must equal five, that if Jack is the son of a miller, the, the father... Miller, yeah, the miller has a son named Miller's, Jack. Uh, yeah, right, right. There is the, the sort of pure rationality of mathematics, the same reason why Plato would write above the academy, right, let no one enter ignorant of geometry, is not the same level or kind of truth and reason as uh, the laws of gravi gravitation uh, or, or any of these other things. I mean, as Cheston politely gives the, the image, right, there's nothing that says, right, in the same way of 2 plus 1 equaling 3 or the Jack being the Miller's son, the Miller having a son named Jack, it's not the same level of relationship or reason for the apple to fall and hit Newton on the head. Um, and Joe, you spent a lot of time going around and proposing the truths of the faith and teaching it. And obviously you're dealing with the same modern world that Chesterton or, or even more advanced stages of the scientism that Chesterton's touching on. So is that something that you think about and encounter the, the ways in which we level out and approach truth? Yeah, so I would say one of the ways to address this is talking about a difference between a prescriptive and a descriptive approach to something like when we use the word law. Broadly speaking, there are two categories. And then as we get more specific, there's actually more than two categories. So broadly speaking, sometimes the word law means we've observed this and it tends to do that. Uh, that's the descriptive sense of law. The prescriptive law is this lawgiver passed this thing saying this other thing's going to happen. But Chesterton's point gets even, even more specific, which is there are some things that are, yeah, this logic relation, logical relationality that if Cinderella has older sisters, those older sisters have a younger sister named Cinderella. Like there's no world in which that couldn't be true. Mm -hmm. If you understand what those words mean, like it's, it's true just by the relationship of ideas to themselves. Like I, I think in a certain way, uh, anyone familiar with like, the work of Kant, uh, mm -hmm. it would, would recognize some of where that argument uh, may have been sparked. But what's interesting is Chesterton uses imagination as a way of approaching that. that like, mm -hmm. you literally can't imagine a, a world in which two and three doesn't equal five. Anyone who says they do imagine that is just changing the number. Like, they're just, right. they're just calling, you know, four, three or something. And, you know, it's something like that. Um, so I think that's, that's a really good way to begin because Bishop Barron's talked about this before scientism this idea of science as as a mathematical truth and as this highest kind of infallible knowledge that isn't contingent on anything else including right. the created world that is a, a, a just a really widespread misunderstanding of science and a misappropriation of science 
So it's like, well, no, miracles can't happen because there's this law that says things act according to their nature. It's like, what do we mean there? And so that's, I think that's exactly where he's going to go and kind of unpack uh, a very common uh, misconception we find, for example, in, in Hume's argument on miracles. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in, in Hume, the connection with Hume... Yeah, you is, touched on the, the sore point for Father here. No, it's not. It's, it was a sore point. It's not anymore. Um, so for those of you who don't know, David Hume was a Scottish philosopher of the Enlightenment. And uh, one of the... Uh, one of his arguments was against causality, right? So Hume's philosophy of causation is that we are not aware of any connection between cause and effect, and that it, it is only by our experience of their constant conjunction that we arrive, we can arrive at any knowledge of, of reality, right? So, um, and, and you pick up that in Chesterton here. And, and at first it was kind of shocking. Now, the more I thought about it, the more I, I came to appreciate what Chesterton's doing here. This shows what an original thinker he is, and it shows why he's such a good apologist, because most of the people who subscribe to Hume's philosophy, which I very strongly disagree with, they're atheists, they're agnostics, they're skeptics, they're moral relativists. Chesterton accepts this philosophical conclusion, seemingly, and he takes it to orthodoxy, which is a paradox, but it's beautiful. Uh, and, and I think it's able to engage the modern world a lot better than someone like me, who, when he first encountered Hume, um, uh, you know, I, I immediately began, you know, I, I'm a diocesan priest. I'm not an academic. I just need to know how to refute this guy uh, was, was kind of my attitude towards him. Yeah, I think he's taking part of Hume and right. actually using it. I think what he's actually doing is, is undermining Hume's argument on miracles, using Hume's argument on causality. And right, that, all that's a, a very, brilliant point. You know, I, you know I, I thought about that, and I think that could be what he's doing. I also think part of this is he's that English yachtsman that he talks about that goes out and, and he's looking for this new island. He's looking for truth and meaning, and he's taking what the modern world has to offer, and it takes him back to England. It takes him back to orthodoxy. And I wonder, I, I, I don't know, because he isn't very explicit you know, I wondered that, like when he talks about original sin in in the chapter, The Maniac, he says, but the modern world doesn't accept sin, so let's talk about insanity. I wondered if that's what he was doing here, but he never says that explicitly. I wonder if he accepted Hume's argument on causality at some point in his life, but it brought him to orthodoxy. Right. I think both of those things can be true. Sure. Like, I don't think he's, I don't think he's just accepting it necessarily arguendo, you know, like for the sake of argument, let's pretend this is true. What would happen? Like he may have actually dabbled with it. He may have actually embraced it, but I think he sees in there an inconsistency that I've, I've never seen another person pick up on, which is what Hume's saying about causality doesn't work with his argument against miracles in which he assumes everything he denies on causality is true and therefore, that the laws of nature are these these laws that cannot be violated by anyone, including the lawgiver, uh, or at least it would be so exceedingly rare. Like he he does it on this basis of probability. Like, well, this is what usually happens. So therefore, a miracle, if it did happen, would be so un- unlikely that a non-miraculous explanation would always be more the more likely explanation. If you really unpack it, he's saying one of two things: either. Miracles are unusual, not what we would normally find in nature, which is literally the point. Or uh, you can't have miracles because the laws are the laws. And, and uh, if, if he's saying the second one, I think Chesterton is saying, 
you can't do that. Like it, that doesn't work with what we know. It doesn't work with Hume's own philosophy. But what that brings back though is um, sort of going back to the more Catholic vision of creation, which is not just the clockmaker God, which is that that you know there's an operative sustaining grace every day to creation at all moments, at all points in time and space. So that, I mean, the, the beautiful image of God being like the child who keeps saying to the sun, right, do it again, right? The sunset and the sunrise, do it again, do it again. Um, that comes back to it, that that ordinary existence, the, the ordinary is more extraordinary than the extraordinary. And that um, su- sustaining grace is constantly imbuing all of creation. Um, and so it is filled with the miraculous. Um, That's a great, can I jump on that point? Yeah. Be- so... When I was in high school, uh, I was in a not-so-great theology class that <laughs> was, was looking at the parting of the Red Sea, and we watched a video in class, which is like a hallmark of a good The Cecil B. DeMille's. I wish. Uh, it was a skeptical take that said, well, maybe this doesn't mean the Red Sea. It means a sea of reeds. So it's a much smaller body of water, and mm-hmm. there just happened to be like a tsunami or something coming, so all the water receded, the Israelites passed through, and then it went forward. And so it's like, <sighs> uh, it didn't yeah. have to be a miracle. It could just be this incredibly weird fluke. Uh, and But it seems like to even accept that, you'd have to be like, either the Israelites got insanely lucky, right. or God designed this whole thing so that they went across it, just it, at the right time. Which right. Is, it's this, and so all of creation becomes this giant elaborate Rube Goldberg machine. Exactly. <laughs> like, it didn't actually solve... Like, If they were worried about accepting uh, the improbability of miracles, I guess I'd say first, you can't even assign probability to a miracle. Right. It's like saying, if I'm playing a game of chess, I can say, what is the probability they're going to... you know move the pawn as opposed to the queen. But if I say, what's the probability they're going to let me take my move back? That's a different scale altogether. And knowing chess perfectly doesn't give me any insight into that question. I have to know the other person. The philosophers who say, I don't need to know the lawgiver. I can just tell you on the basis of laws what the probability is. They misunderstand entirely. Like only a theologian could even approach the question of what's the likelihood of a, a miracle happening. And only one in conversation with the lawgiver. We, sorry, your theology class, that's bad enough, but that actually reminds me of a certain version of the Bible, which is out in English translation, where Joshua is getting ready to cross over into the promised land, and the um, the Jordan River is miraculously stopped. So it's a sort of second parting of this great body of water. And in this officially released translation, there is a note that says, what probably happened here is that annual spring floods knocked down several trees a few miles up the river and that these trees temporarily dammed up the the river at just the right moment and that the ancient israelites took this for a miracle it's it's i say two things on that one it's it's astonishing when people are like they probably didn't know how floods worked these very agrarian (laughs) people like they probably didn't know what happened when a tree was in the water like only an academic could possibly have that condescending of a view right. of people who live on the land. But but second is, I think Chesterton would say, that's still miraculous in a certain sense. Now, right. obviously, it's not miraculous in the strict sense of being supernatural. Right. And, and it, it's, uh, it's wondrous. Wondrous, And it, yeah. it's, it's more irrational in a certain sense because you're adding all these other additional variables <laughs> to the equation that are not in evidence. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible bit of exegesis. 
Right. But assume for a second <laughs> that the Sea of Reeds crossing is true. Assume for a second that the tree blocking the Jordan River, which ridiculous. But assume all of those things are true, and, and they all happen at just the right time. I think Chesterton would say, if that doesn't lead you to wonder, if you say, well, because I understand that gravity is a thing, therefore I don't need to say, what a remarkable set right. of timing. What a, what a remarkable set of circumstances. Then you're just Mr. Magoo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're traveling exactly. around the world. Like, of course I'm okay. Yeah, almost like Forrest Gump. Like, everything just falls in place in terms of the timing, <laughs> and no one asks any questions. But like, well, it's pretty remarkable that you had that many uh, yeah. providential encounters at, at that time. Yeah. Well, that's good. I feel like I've let us off with a, a little bit of a, a, a detour here on, on this, um, and I want to bring us back into the, the main part of the argument. So we have this idea of miracles being possible. We've, we talked about this test of the imagination as one of the ways that we can talk about it. But I also wanted to bring in the other thing that, um, uh, you know, sort of my hobby horse throughout the, the whole thing is this idea of wonder. Um, and on what I have here, it's my page 51. I don't know what other people are looking at. Chesterton says, this elementary wonder, however, is not a mere fancy derived from the fairy tales. On the contrary, all the fire of the fairy tales is derived from this. Just as we all like love tales because there is an instinct of sex, we all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. And he goes on to talk about, you know, the sort of you go through the door and there's a dragon or whatever it is. Yeah, the child of seven's intrigued by the... But just the fact that you've opened the door. The child of three, yeah, he says he says the child of seven is intrigued by a story that Tommy opened the door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask both of you about um, sort of, again, the necessity of recovering a sense of wonder. It struck me as, um, you know, some wonders, wonder is sort of a, a concept that I've, I've thought about a lot, and it's one that I've forgotten, you know, that Chesterton touched on so much here in Orthodoxy. So I'm wondering... Um, Pun intended. I see what you did there. I see what I did there. Uh, I'm wondering what you two make of the necessity of wonder in the Christian life. Um, I'll say this. One thing I kept thinking of throughout this chapter was a fiction book uh, by P.D. James called The Children of Men. It's about the future where women haven't been able to get pregnant for about 20 years. And it's the the... You know, so often, really, I think what what Children of Men is getting at is a is a critique of the modern world, which seemingly takes the wonder, the miracle of human life, for granted, uh, sees it as something that we should restrict or uh, through through contraception, uh, something we should eliminate through abortion. You know, she gets into all that. I think all of that stuff's there, but something that happens over and over again. We lose that wonder that the three-year-old has, and we need to find a way to capture it again because it is wonderful that when an egg hat hatches, a chicken comes out of it. It is wonderful that there's that order in the universe, that it, it points to the fact, uh, you know, Chesterton says it's magic, and it points to the fact that there must be a magician behind the magic. Uh, so I think this wonder is incredibly important for seeing the hand of God in simple creation. 
Yeah. So, so Sophia Cavaletti, uh, in her book, The Religious Potential of the Child, talks about the role of wonder. And she actually quotes a UNESCO report, like United Nations, uh, talks about how this capacity for wonder is critical if you're going to be a good listener, if you're going to be an artist, if you're going to be a philosopher. And she answered that basically if you're going to be a saint. Like if you're going to have a real religious sense, you need a sense of wonder. You need that. that it, it's so connected to the ideas of mystery and the ideas of awe that to really understand what Christianity is saying, we need to recover this sense of wonder. Uh, just like we need to recover a certain sense of like the numinous. Uh, but there... But the, I, f- I find there's like, there's nothing in our current catechesis that really puts an emphasis on that. Like, I, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm, maybe I'm misreading it, but I think it's, it's one of those things where you go back to sources, you go to something like Chesterton, you, f- you find it smack dab right there. You need this as sort of foundational before you approach it. I, I would go even further and say a lot of the, the way we approach theology, especially scripture studies, especially in Catholic institutions is to do a, a merely historical approach. I, I mean, the, the purely historical approach is, I think, contrary to, to most good appreciation of source material. Meaning, like, when you're approaching poetry by just asking what year was it written, who was it written by, and what kind of external events mm-hmm. was it written in response to, you're not enjoying the poem itself. You're, you're yeah. enjoying, like, the, the index in the back of the book. Well, as a, as a literature professor, it's one of the things that frustrates me the most. Is you know more interested in discussing you know what what, what brand of coffee uh, the 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 author was drinking at that time, or what his sleep patterns were like, than actually discussing any of the ideas or words that are in the text. Exactly, like in Mystery and Manners, uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about like this is one of the great ways to not teach English. Like if you have an English class and you don't want to teach English, just start focusing on like. What was the political motivation of the author? And you can manage to not actually read the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, we can, we can approach Scripture the same way. We can approach theology the same way, where we don't allow ourselves to enter in and to, be in, to encounter that kind of wonder. We just have this purely, uh, what was the series of redactors and what century was there? And, and it's the equivalent to approaching a book, only reading the front flap and the back of the book, and then putting it down without ever having read, you know, or, or, or you're interested in, in just the metadata, right? How right. many how many pages is the book? On what kind of sheets of what, what kind of papers it printed on? What's the quality of the ink? You know, like exactly uh, how much you know how much sun damage has it seen on its book jacket? Uh, and not actually reading who was who the, the editor, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is the editor? Who's the publisher? What's, what what's his salary? <laughs> yeah, and and you can get through all of that, and you can know a tremendous a bit about the book as an object but know nothing about the book as a book like you can know nothing about the actual content inside uh and so same thing is true here sophia cavaletti says when we're talking about wonder we don't mean alice in wonderland we don't mean an escape from reality we actually mean more properly an entrance into reality and i think that's one area where like chesterton would totally agree that like the reason the child of three has that wonder at a person opening the door is because reality itself is wonderful and there's something mysterious and magical about it. And when we try to reduce it all to the metadata, uh, we strip reality of this most fundamental characteristic. I, I, you know what I think is interesting is Chesterton comes about this wonder from fairy tales uh, because you're not going to talk to a five-year-old uh, about the metadata of, of Sleeping Beauty or Jack and the Beanstalk. You're going to tell this story in such a way that it captivates the the five-year-old's imagination that 
there was this giant he, he said i knew about the bean jack and the beanstalk before i knew about beans right right from his earliest days he was fed this diet of fairy tales and this diet of fairy tales it gave him this twofold uh philosophy of realism on the one hand right this this mathematical necessity but also this wonder that things might have been different that trees might not bear fruit they might bear tigers you know that the apple might not fall and hit newton on the nose it might fly to a nose that it disliked more um and and so because of this wonder he's able to encounter hume and see and and take a path that leads to orthodoxy where most people take it and lead it leads hmm. to unbelief I mean, all of it reminds me of um the the greek poet hesiod um, where he talks he has a he recounts this encounter with the muses and they sort of um smack him aside and say look you arrogant like uh bumpkin right uh you merely belly uh we're the muses we're going to teach you how to do poetry and let me tell you about poetry we know how to say true things we know how to say false things and then we know how to say false things which are true and this is kind of fairy tales right there's the true things mathematics there's false things which blatant lies and then there's this category of things which are in a, a sort of system of their own, but they teach us about the truth in a way that we can't approach uh, in, in any other way. I have no idea if I'm stirring up controversy here. No, it's okay. I hope I am. Uh, Jordan Peterson is, yeah. I think, someone carrying, yeah, yeah, carrying yeah, the yeah. mantle on this right now, where he says, like, no, dragons are real. And I think he means that they belong in that third category, that, like, every dragon fairy tale is yeah. telling you something true. Now, we can get... Yeah, Wait look, <laughs> as someone who like uh, came to came to Catholicism from sort of dabbling in New Age stuff and Jungian philosophy and psychology, and I kind of look at Jordan Peterson and I'm like, eh, there's a lot there that I really disagree with. Uh, de the right because I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's very much like you have this the influence of Campbell, which recognizably is not the way to go with it because right. he tries to take reality and reduce it to a myth. Right. But I think Chesterton would say, no, but the myth actually points to reality. Yeah. So in, for, in a deeper yeah. sense. for our listeners, I mean, we're talking about Joseph Campbell, right? Yes. Which is again, this new agey thing where if you're like on Saturday mornings on PBS or something like that, you'll see like, uh, I think it's like Sigourney Weaver or someone, some celebrity like that is like doing like the, let me tell you about the truth that Joseph Campbell has revealed to us and that everything is a myth and everything is an archetype. <laughs> I think this is the, you know, they they kind of they kind of skirt the the pendulum in the in the wrong direction where you know you have sort of identity politics polarizing, atomizing, particularizing everything, and then you have on the other hand this call of well there is no individual, there's just this larger hero quest or whatever you want to call it. And I have, Anyway, this, that's for another time for you and I to, to hash that one out. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely don't want to give a carte blanche endorsement i only think i like that there are people who are agitating over on that side of the question because i think we've gotten so hyper obsessed with the literal uh yeah you know something is either literal or it's not true yeah and, and i think there's a whole world that is like no that's not no. that's not right like the idea of a circle is in some ways more of a circle than every circle you've ever encountered i think i think you see this um you know i gave a talk on uh right before this covid stuff hit about uh, typology and i use the example uh from humani generis joe's not surprised i cited humani generis uh i uh, from pius the 12th about genesis the first few chapters being poetic 
the point of it was not to talk about Genesis and creation. There was a, a, a person there who got really hung up on it and was like, so are you saying Genesis isn't true? I said, no, no, it's, it's not given a, it's given a poetic historical account of creation. It, it's not given a blow by blow of how the Big Bang happened or, or, or however things were created. And, but there was this hang up on it, this hang up on it. It's either literal or it's a, it's a, a made up story with little value. Yeah, Newman said we. Uh, John Henry Newman said we don't distinguish between love poems and police reports. Like, and one of the one of the things that we don't get well in the way we approach scripture is there's love poetry in there, and we were reading it all like police reports. Like, oh well, is that literal? Like, if, <laughs> yeah. Father's Day is coming up, if you get a number one dad mug, do you need to return it if you think there might actually be a better dad out there? You get like yeah. a yeah. number seven hundred and twelve thousand dad, like. Well, what in the world? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, I, I like that idea, Joe, because it, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like a police report of Genesis, right? Like perpetrator said, "Let there be light," and there, and there was light. Re- light is reported to have appeared. <laughs> light arrived on the scene at 1900 hours. Yeah. Quality was quality good. Yeah. Um, uh, I I don't want us to to go over long here, um, and we've spent a, a large part in the, this sort of first idea that Chesterton was talking about and i'm going to keep pushing us father uh to the to the end of the chapter here because there's a few more other points that that he introduces um and in large in there is this whole idea of the doctrine of conditional joy and i think um for the grammarian um that makes sense to me for a lot of other people i don't think there's an immediate uh understanding of what he means when he speaks about conditional joy so maybe we could just outline uh, either Joe or Father. Um, I'll, I'll leave the floor open of what is conditional joy. Um, so the test of all happiness is gratitude, Chesterton writes. And I felt grateful, though I hardly knew to whom. Children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stocking gifts of toys or sweets. Could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he put in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs? We thank people for birthday presents of cigars and slippers. Can I thank no one for the birthday presents of birth? Um, The doctrine of conditional joy, right? This idea which he talks about, he gets, he, a couple, like a paragraph down, he gets into, he goes, Anyone can see it uh, who will simply read Grimm's fairy tales, the fine collections of Mr. Andrew Lang. For the pleasures of pedantry, I will call it the doctrine of conditional joy. Yeah, I want to ask you and Joe, again, this idea of Christ sort of lurking behind uh, the early chapters of orthodoxy. And he talks about this idea that, um, you know, to complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I'd only been born once. And he goes on further and says that um, their emotion never impressed me for an instant for this reason, that it never occurred to them to pay for their pleasure in any sort of symbolic sacrifice. Mm. Um, and that sacrifice then, so he's, he's saying, you know, I believe in this sort of reason, but reason rightly understood, the sort of fairy reason. And then I also believe in a doctrine of conditional joy that to accept one thing means to exclude the realm of possibilities of these others. And there's a whole lot more laying in there that he never sort of teases out. Right. And I think, you know, Christ looms large in that. When I, when I hear the word sacrifice, you know, it's, it's where I go to. Uh, and yet I haven't heard too many people when talking about this part of Chesterton sort of contemplate, what does it mean that um, this Christian joy Right, which is true joy, 
is a sacrificial joy. Yet their motion never impressed me for an instant for this reason, that it never occurred to them to pay for their pleasure in any sort of symbolic sacrifice. Men, I felt, might fast for 40 days for the sake of hearing a blackbird sing. Men might go through fire to find a cowslip, yet these lovers of beauty could not even keep sober for the blackbird. They would not go through common Christian marriage by way of recompense or cowslip. Surely one might pay for the extraordinary joy in ordinary morals. Oscar Wilde said that sunsets were not valued because we could not pay for sunsets. But Oscar Wilde was wrong. We can pay for sunsets. We can pay for them by not being Oscar Wilde. Um, it's a pretty funny dig at Oscar Wilde. It is, yeah, there is. This idea of sacrifice, this idea of saying yes to one thing means saying no to a whole plenitude of others. It, you value something if you're willing to sacrifice for it. Uh, if, you must really love your wife if you're willing to say, I will love you exclusively until death do us part. But I, I want to go even further than that. Not just willing to, desiring to. Yes. Like there, there is, I think, embedded within these stories, two things. One, the conditionality of joy. You know, do this, don't do that kind of ideas are, are large. Like, you can be very happy if you go this way. If you go this other way, you'll be very unhappy. And, and almost invariably, they go the other way. Um, but the other thing is that sacrifice isn't just like a necessary evil, that there's something good in the sacrifice. Uh, like, it, it's good that you have to earn it's not the right word, strive for it maybe. You know, like, if Sleeping Beauty just woke up on her own and was like, oh, you seem like a nice guy to the prince, that's not a story. And it's like, you know, like, we don't want that. We want for him to have to fight for her. We want for him to actually strive for, you know, like all of that, that striving and all of that isn't just, I'll do it if it comes to all that, but rather uh, we feel a little robbed if it doesn't come to all that. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you see uh, when you talk about what it means to love another, you, what do we see is the highest expression of love, but the self-sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? He, it was uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, uh, that we might have life. Uh, and so, yeah. So if I can jump on that, too. Please do. Like, when Aquinas talks about how a single drop of Christ's blood was enough to atone for the entire world, you know, it, that would be all that's necessary in a certain sense. But it was better that we got the cross. Yes. yes. That's, I think, fairy tales agree with him. I, I know, that, like, this chapter I really struggled with when I first read it because it made me really uncomfortable to, t to take something like the cross and fairy tales in the same breath, partly because I, you know, I already told you about the kind of bad theology classes I've been exposed <laughs> to. I said, yeah, basically the same thing. And for that matter, Joseph Campbell, basically the same thing. It's all the hero's journey, Luke Skywalker, Jesus Christ, same, same basic figure. <laughs> and, and it's like, no, that's, that's totally wrong. But if this is true and if it's true in like the, the most foundational fundamental sense of reality, then we should expect myths and fairy tales to tell us something about it. Just like myths and fairy tales tell us something true about good and evil, because good and evil actually exist in a non-purely mythic sense. It's a mic drop. That's great. Yeah, it is. That is great. Those are some really great points, Joe. Um, but before we go to wrap up the end of the chapter, I want to touch on something else that we haven't talked about yet, which is this idea of um, further on on the conditionality of joy uh, a counter argument to that or, or something that's been opposed to it is sort of the modern conception of the world as sort of ever expansive and infinite. 
Um, we're not just in a universe, we're inside of a galaxy, which is there are many more galaxies and there's billions of them. And uh, there's sort of this fear of the largeness of the world. And Chesterton says, uh, modern th thought also hit my second tradition. It went against the fairy feeling about strict limits and conditions, that is conditional joy. The one thing I, it loved to talk about was expansion and largeness. Herbert Spencer would have been greatly annoyed if anyone had called him an imperialist. And therefore, it is highly regrettable that nobody did. Speaking of good digs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he was an imperialist of the lowest type. He popularized this contemptible notion that the size of the solar system ought to overawe the spiritual dogma of man. Why should a man surrender his dig dignity to the solar system any more to the, than to a whale? If mere size proves that man is not made in the image of God, then a whale may be the image of God, a somewhat formless image, but one might call an impressionist portrait. It is quite futile to argue that man is small compared to the cosmos, for man was always small compared to the nearest tree. And there's a wonderful poem by Robert Frost called Desert Places, and I wanted to, um, to read it really quick because I think it, the last stanza at least uh, really hits on uh, what we're talking about here in a much more succinct way. So Robert Frost says, Snow falling and night falling fast, oh fast, in a field I looked into going past, and the ground almost covered smooth in snow, but a few weeds and stubble showing last. The woods around it have it, it is theirs. All animals are smothered in their lairs. I am too absent-spirited to count. The loneliness includes me unawares. And lonely as it is, that loneliness will be more lonely, or it will be less. And blanker whiteness of benighted snow, with no expression, nothing to express. They cannot scare me with their empty spaces between stars on stars where no human race is. I have it in me so much nearer home to scare myself with my own desert places. And that's sort of, it's, it's sort of the negative, but it, it, it affirms the same thing that Chesterton is talking about. This whole modern drive to sort of diminish us in our own imagination to the point where it overwhelms us and causes us to despair. And despair is in many ways the opposite of wonder. Right, so he's wonder is is in, in turn the antidote to this problem. Wonder is not concerned with so much the size of the universe as so much the nearest tree. Um, I know it was my selfish thing to to emphasize that point, but I wanted to um, sort of open up the the field here for anything else that we might have missed before we wrap up the chapter. I might say two brief things. Sure, that sounds so great. So the first thing is that the the objection. So for those, you know, if you're if you're not familiar, the objection is basically the ancients didn't realize how big the world was, and so they thought man was this really important part. But it actually turns out the universe is huge, and we're a tiny planet and a tiny speck of the cosmos, and we're actually very insignificant. And Chester which seems to ignore the realities of ancient agriculture, which is that you know the nature was constantly telling the human person how insignificant they were by obliterating them with all of its natural phenomena. I mean, this is the people who gave us the constellations. They yeah. they looked up and contemplated the stars. Sorry. And, and so, I, know, yeah. I know that was a side. No, no, but that's, that's actually exactly where I wanted to go. Like Psalm 8 talks about this uh, in verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him little less than a god and crowned yeah. him with glory and honor. So this is this is, if you want to call it the astronomer's paradox. Right. Or the stargazer's paradox. Like you look at the heavens and the cosmos and you're once aware of your your smallness in the in the scheme of things, but you're also aware that 
that you are the kind of creature capable of taking in the cosmos and contemplating them. So you see your largeness and your smallness simultaneously. Uh, it would be as, as if you made an argument against a loving God by saying, uh, how could you love that person if you bought them a huge house? Now the house is much bigger than them. And it's like, that is such a bizarre kind of <laughs> argument. Like the fact that the cosmos we were given is enormous and incomprehensibly large is, is hardly an argument against human dignity. It is not even a, a coherent argument when really drilled down. It, it's tapping into something emotional, which is that we quiver in, yeah. the, in the face of very large things. Right, and it only <laughs> looks at the category of quantity, right? It, 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 has, it has nothing to do with the quality of, of the objects in question. Because properly, that quaking is the quaking of wonder, not the quaking of, yeah. of insignificance. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, Father, are there any other um, points that we didn't touch on that you wanted to make sure we, we did before we wrapped up the chapter here? Yeah, I do want to hit on, I, I, he gets into this towards the end, um, he gets into this um, kind of second uh, and third to last chapter. So he he talks about um, you know kind of the the final point he makes, which we talked about was the, at the in the outline is that all the good in the universe is a remnant to be stored and held sacred because it was saved from some primordial ruin, right? Uh, like Robinson Crusoe uh, with the shipwreck, you know, he saved two axes and. Um, you two know, guns, two one gu axe. So, uh, mea culpa. Two guns, one axe, right? <laughs> and 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 so, even out of the primordial ruin that is original sin, which is really what he's getting at there, even there you see that conditional joy, that that wonder uh, that comes out of uh, out of out of the fallenness of of creation. I don't know. Do you, either of you have thoughts on this this final Robinson Crusoe point? You know, it's um, maybe it's a point of angelology, but one of the, the things I wonder about it with it too is that you know there's the moment of original sin for the human person, but then there's also a, an even earlier fall of the angels, and I wonder how much uh, condi is conditional joy something that was baked into creation uh, after our own fall, or or was it something that was even existing before that? Right, that you have the I, I, that's getting into like the, the tree seems to say the latter. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's conditional joy in Eden very explicitly. Right. Yeah. It's like, you can have this everlasting joy or you can eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. Th yeah. I think track. that's a better way of putting it is that creation itself has it baked in, um, be, eat, regardless of whether or not we fell, that the joy was conditional. It just wouldn't be a very good, uh, Sorry, and it, obviously it's, it's more than a story, but it wouldn't be a very good story if God was like, oh, and uh, don't eat from this tree, and Adam didn't eat from the tree, <laughs> and at the end of the Bible. Well, but, but, you know, we talked about this in an earlier chapter where we talked about how a lot of people see original sin as an oppressive doctrine, right? That you're saying that, yeah. that I'm fallen, and, um, and really there's a, there, what Chesterton sees is the beauty of original sin, um, and here it's just another aspect of that beauty that he's appreciating, right? That there are two sexes in one son was like the fact that there were two guns in one axe, right? It was point, poignantly urgent that none should be lost, but somehow it was rather fun that none could be added. Uh, I mean, he really is like the three-year-old who's thrilled by a door opening. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, a, that's something that is, uh, I'm envious of because I've ne I, I'm not. <laughs> I think most of us aren't. 
right? And I'm it, I'm not I I don't get that sense of thrill uh, that he did by seeing that there were two sexes in one son. You know, I think we could probably sum up this chapter by saying, if you learn to love reality and stand in awe of reality, uh, it, it's a road to God. Like it's it's a yeah. road to Christ. Like yeah. yes to reality is a yes to Christianity, even if you don't see it yet. It, well, and I think I think the the road to that road, if you will, is imagination and wonder. Is what he's getting at. Imagination, wonder, and and properly understood reason you know this realism yeah no i think uh joe's point is great because i mean that's that is the next chapter right the, the flag of the world yeah um so but we won't discuss that here because that's not what we're here to discuss today so uh father would you like to close us out today yes in the name of father son holy spirit amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners, sinners now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast of the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, serving the students, faculty, and staff of Emporia State University since 1990. To learn more about the Diddy Center, please visit us at www.diddycenter.org. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review. Or better still, share with your friends. God bless.